In 2005, two brothers hit the road to chase demons and fight monsters. You know, like you do. After 15 years, they made television history and built a community of dedicated and lasting fans. Sure did. I'm Rob Benedict, and I played God, a.k.a. Chuck Shirley. Yeah, you are, and yeah, you did. And I'm Richard Spade Jr., and I play the Archangel Gabriel, a.k.a. the Trickster, a.k.a. Loki. I also had the privilege of directing a bunch of episodes of the show. Have a few more a.k.a.s, why don't you? Jeez. A.k.a. you're a jerk. Though we've been involved with the series for years and multiple seasons, we never sat down and watched the entire show. Oh, that's not true anymore. Now... We're deep into it. We are going episode by episode and diving in with the folks who made it to bring you an insider's point of view and some great behind-the-scenes stories from the writers, producers, crew, and actors. And you're getting our pure, honest, unfettered reviews. And along the road, let me tell you, we're becoming fans. Buddy, we are super fans. We've heard you saying it for years, and we finally get what all the excitement's about. This show holds up after all this time and deserves to be watched and rewatched. We will be hitting on some spoilers, so consider yourself warned. And if you have any angry emails you want to send, please direct them to Babo. Thank you for joining our journey and listening to Supernatural Then and Now. Hey everybody, it's Rob Benedict. And Richard Spate Jr. And this is our Spotlight episode. Spotlight, Spotlight. We're turning on the spotlight on someone, on someone. That's our Spotlight episode theme song that we just premiered. Uh, we've not played that in the past, but... Uh, We're doing it now. Yeah, going forward, I think it's going to stick. Yeah, I think it's going to stick. I can't wait for you to remember that next time we have a Spotlight episode. And this Spotlight is on the one and only Eric Kripke. Wow, that's a pretty important person to Spotlight, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's kind of going to stink to be the next Spotlight person. Yeah. When they're like, hey, am I the most important person you've Spotlighted? We'll be like, uh, no. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because it's yeah. You don't get bigger than Eric Kripke, not in this world. Yeah, yeah. See, what we do is we have we have certain opportunities to interview folks from the show outside of the typical episode order. So right. the spotlight episodes are where we have conversations with individual guests or groups about their entire supernatural experience or specific topic. Or in this case, you know, the person without whom we wouldn't be here talking about supernatural. No, literally, we would be on this Zoom with nothing to talk about because we didn't right. know each other. And there's no show being discussed. And like, it would be so awkward and weird. Yeah. So like normally we talk about, we might, you know, these episodes could be about big pieces of talent or producers, or we might cover one topic like baby or the score or all the angels. Yeah. Uh, but today we are speaking with Eric Kripke. That's right, man. The Crip Keeper. Wait, no. Well. That doesn't make any sense. You know, that, 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 that reminds me of a question we didn't ask. I just thought maybe his nickname in high school was the Crip Keeper, you know what I mean? Because yeah. and, and again, we, we were talking about in the last episode, Rich, maybe it was calling him the Crip Keeper was what gave him the idea to write uh, horror and supernatural things. But you were saying in the last one that we put together that his initials, his initials spelled Eek. Eek. Eric Edward Kripke. Eek. Yeah. It could have been that, or it could have been that his nickname was the Crip Keeper. At any rate... He created Supernatural, and so uh, we're going to dive into his early career, the beginnings of Supernatural, some of his favorite moments, how he's thought of certain things. So much stuff is unraveled during this interview. It's such a great interview yeah. with so many tidbits yeah. and insights. Uh, I was hanging yeah. on every word. And and, and yeah. he's a, a fun and uh, engaging guy to yeah. talk to. That's right. A great guy, a great interview. Let's get into it. Here's our conversation with Eric Kripke. Spotlight.
Eric Kripke, thank you so much for being with us. What a treat. Uh, guys, I'm thrilled to be here. What's up? This is incredible. It's not just a treat. You realize we like we have this is the legend. <laughs> we've talked, we've spoken of Kripke and Hush Tones now for I don't know four episodes, four seasons of episodes, and now he's here. And I almost don't know what to do. With yeah, this. no. You know thanks I mean? for saying that, Rich. Like it's, it's all really overwhelming. true. It's so true. It's so <laughs> legendary. I'm so, well, that's I'm so glad you the, said that. The sentences your agent. Your agent sent me that. I had to say that. That was part of the contract to get you here. Yeah. No, it was actually in your rider for hiring you. Um, <laughs> it's all carefully managed. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, exactly. we're, it's, it, we, we've got a lot to get to because, you know, obviously you're the man and lots of questions, personal and in terms of the show. So um, what's the story of the, the first TV pitch that you sold? Like, what was the journey to get into the room and set up that first show? Oh, the very, very first one is the short film that got me in the door called uh, Battle of the Sexes, which I okay. made outside of uh, college. With um, I, I, The first thing you told me not to do was say Steve Hine, but Steve Hine was one of the producers of it. Oh, so awesome. I just have to say, I love so it. I have to say that. And so uh, Warner Brothers met with me and they sort of liked it and liked the writing. And um, it's like it was an earlier time. They were giving out TV deals like at the airport. TV was not the classy ass shit that it is today it was, just, yeah. it was definitely like oh yeah you look like you can breathe and stand upright and you're bipedal here's a here's a tv deal yeah yeah and yeah. um and so i had to pitch them some shows and then the very first thing i pitched them that they bought was a, a adaptation of a dc comic book it was like a spy thing called codename knockout that okay um i wrote Love and it. never got made and they threw it out and then after that was Tarzan. Yes. Which did get made to everybody's shame. And was that oh really? <laughs> and that was on that was on the WB? Yeah, it was on the WB. They were <laughs> looking for like a, a Smallville companion at the time. Okay. And so they, you know, they had Tarzan and they allowed me to come in and pitch on it. And, you know, it was definitely one of those like always say you can ride the horse thing that you guys do. Like I came in, I'm like, I love Tarzan. <laughs> Fucking A, like I'm so passionate. Like I had never read, all I knew is like, like they monkeys. Call me, is, they call me Tarzan boy. It was, right? uh, it was oh, I mean, everything. Did you come in wearing a loincloth? <laughs> yeah. And then I went and yeah. pitched Tarzan. I got the job, first of all, which is crazy. And then I wrote a pilot. And then David Nutter, who ended up directing the Supernatural pilot, obviously, and uh, is the reason Rich enjoyed a long career as the trickster. Right. Well, actually, no, it would be a combo of... Uh, Bob Singer and him. Nutter and Singer, yeah. Yeah. Singer, too. Singer, probably, first and foremost. Yeah. So Nutter, like, signed on to it and wanted to actually do it, which was crazy. And then we were shooting a pilot. And then we were making a series. And, like, first of all, I was 27 years old. Wow. Wow. And had never set foot in a writer's room. Wow. I was just a struggling screenwriter trying to get a job, right? And just wow. And, and so my first day in a writer's room, I was the right. showrunner. I mean, I was partnered with somebody, but I was like one of the showrunners. And there's no handbook they, they give you. You just like go. No, exactly. And if you think like this story is like, and then he rose to the challenge, that is not <laughs> what happened. Um I I proceeded to f up. In every way a human can f*** up. Wow. Like, like what? Do you remember specifically? I didn't stand up for myself 
really with anyone. The job of a showrunner really first among many things, but a big part of the job is like slapping hands away from the candy jar. Like you cannot have that. Like, no, that's wrong. And, and you have to protect the piece, right? And I didn't have the knowledge or right. the balls or the experience to do that. So like my whole take on it was, it was basically like super homeless guy. And it's like, <laughs> like he's in, you know, cause he had to go to New York. That was the other part of it. Is like, it modern so, day? Modern, modern day. day and okay. he's in New York and it was okay. supposed to be like, edgy and violent and he's like kind of like on the tree on the rooftops and whenever he sees someone do anything like wrong he like sad it was supposed to be like this kind of dark comic ideal right superhero superhero y thing and jane was like he was a cop naturally i mean well you know <laughs> of course that's amazing of course it's so good it's so, so good. <laughs> right. But then like the WB was like, actually what this is, is I want to, we want to make a soap like dynasty. And so this is going to be like a story about the drama inside like Tarzan's family. <laughs> the Tarzan Not with other family. monkeys. Not with other monkeys, but with like yeah, his yeah, rich uncle. And, right, and right. we ended up hiring Lucy Lawless to be his rich aunt, who's lovely and, a, right, and brilliant right, and, right. and did her best with the most shit material. Right. And so like suddenly I'm like trying to write Dynasty. <laughs> Yeah, you know? Jesus. Yeah. And I was like, okay, I get I guess this is how these things go. Yeah. So it right. sucked. it sucked so hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who was the guy who played Tarzan? Travis Fimmel, who's now like I was wondering that same legit. Thing. He was in that Ridley Scott uh show Raised by Wolves. And uh oh, okay. the big thing was he was the lead in Vikings for oh, years. Oh right. Okay. Right? And right. he he was a really, really good actor. Mm. Um uh, okay. he was at the time when we booked him he like he was a he was a calvin klein model and then this was his first job but he was always like really good he's like a farm boy from australia and um you know was always a really sweet guy that's cool hey, what would you say what lessons would you say you learned from that experience that's that right. you got to use in supernatural or was it more than what not to do Countless what not to do is where right. I literally, when I got Supernatural and I was starting it, I literally said to myself, like, I'm just going to do the opposite of what I did on Tarzan. And right. and I did. And I was, a, I was a pretty, turns out I was a pretty good showrunner the second at bat because I just, I went against all of my natural instincts. Interesting. So no, it's like, you have to be all the things that I was when I was younger. Like you can't be at this job. Like you can't be afraid of confrontation. You can't be afraid to fight for the thing you believe in. You know, you can't be afraid to protect the thing, you right. know, because in the first season of a show, it's like everyone's and when I say everyone, I mean, you know, the network primarily, but everyone at the network is scared and they don't know if it's going to work. And so they're always like stretching and pulling and second guessing, you know, a perfect example of that is that I never would have done earlier, but in season one of the show, the president of the WB at the time hated the music we were putting in the show, hated the classic rock because he's got a show on the, on the WB and, uh, and we're putting in like right. Allman Brothers and right. Rush and, and, Fog Hat. and Bad Company and Fog <laughs> Hat. And like, he was just like, right. no way. Like we need current, exciting, you know, young music. Right. And an earlier me would have been like, okay, I mean, I guess, but I, yeah. but I was like, oh, you know, sorry that it's just, 
I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to quit now. Wow. And they were like, wow, are you, they're like, are you quitting over the music <laughs> choice? I'm like, yeah, it's sort of that important to the tone. Um, and you can only pull that card a couple of times. Wow. Um, and you have to mean it. Like yeah. the, you, it never works as a bluff. Right. Uh, and I was young, right? Like I needed a big thing. And they were yeah. like, is this, is this maniac going to walk away from, you know, his first potential success over the music. And I was, it just, it, cause I, it, it, I had a list of what were the important things about that show that I just wasn't willing to cross. And it, it's like that kind of Western route 66 vibe, the fact that it would be like genuinely scary that, you know, that certain sense of humor and the music, you know, cause that to me is what locked the tone into place right. in so many right. ways. Yeah, it feels almost like a like especially the first few seasons, like a pulp book that you picked up or an old an old comic from another time almost, right? Like it almost yeah, exists in the seventies. Yeah, then, yeah. Well, it's like it's like road trip music, right? It's yes, like the, right. the time classic. most people listen to cl classic rock is when they're yeah. cruising across Utah or something. Right, right, right. right. And um and it just fits it fits the vibe. And yeah, it makes it feel right, right, right. like a little timeless versus yes. Versus if we had like fucking put in Death Cab for Cutie exactly. or whatever. A hundred percent. Well, you know, as we go back and watch it, we're like, man, aside from like the flare of the jeans, there's not a lot that dates the show. Like, you know, clamshell phones to smartphones micro or microfiche or something. But there's, but there's, it's not like every episode you're watching, <laughs> you know, you're not watching something that's jarringly a different time. time. Right. And I think the music really helped with that because mm. it was already old. At that yeah. point, like that was already time stamped as classic. Just hold that thought. We're coming right back. Thanks for listening, everybody. And now back to the episode. What, what, what else was there? Was there anything else that comes to mind that they wanted to do that you're like, no, I'm absolutely um, not. You know, I'm not doing Beatles haircuts on the boys or you know, something like that. You know, we, we, we would get in lots of fights about how gory we could make the show, of which Bob Singer was like a, a huge help. And I know he's been on the show, but I just want to say it like for the record, like that man is the unsung hero of Supernatural. People shouldn't be saying like, you know, like they do online or the fans and they're always like Kripke. Like it should have always been Kripke and Singer and honestly Singer and Kripke. Like, like that guy taught me everything there is to know about the job. He was there every step of the way. He was on the show the entirety of the 15 seasons, directed all the best episodes, really set the tone in terms of, you know, really helpful and setting the tone in terms of like a lot of the creative and the yeah. performances and like he just deserves all the credit in the world and and he was just he really taught me also i mean he's i mean you guys both know bob well and um bob is you know when i was saying like i'm kind of scared of confrontation i mean that guy yes. lives for confrontation like like it's his, yeah like i remember one time we were at a bar in vancouver and and he orders like i get like you know can i have an amstel light or whatever and he's like <laughs> jack neat right so they they pour them like not even like right right like jack. scotch yes yeah. <laughs> you know like like fucking Jack Daniels right so they they pour him some Jack and they they put it over the bar and he looks at it and he looks at the bartender and he says you call this a pour <laughs> I was like who is this cowboy who is this yeah. guy I love that that's awesome and so anyway back to like so 
they would always fight us on the gore. And so one, Bob was really good at telling them like, no, nah, we're not going to do that. And we were, he really, it was him and then Phil Segrisha who we really figured out through those guys um, that we always delivered a studio cut with significantly right. more gore right. than we wanted. So there would always be like 20 seconds more yeah. in a gory scene. Right. It would just be over the top. It'd be like stupid. And then they would be like, oh, there's so much gore. And then we'd fight and say, no, we can't. And they'd say, you have to. Say, okay. <laughs> yeah. Then we would yeah. pull it back to what we wanted and then showed it to them. And then they and then they loved it. Yeah. Genius. Like that, I would say, just, you know, try and, uh, okay, here's another good Bob story. I like telling Bob stories. So in, uh, I forget, it was season one or season two, Hillary Swank had a horror movie that Joel Silver was producing, you know, the famous kind of belligerent Hollywood producer you know, Joel Silver, and they wanted, they were like, you know, we could maybe get Hillary to guest star on the show. And we're like, it's the second season wow. of the show and we're going to have Hillary Swank. Like, that's crazy. So Joel wants to get on the phone with me and Bob and talk it out. And I'm like, that's crazy. So Bob is talking to, I'm on the call just being quiet and Bob's talking to Joel Silver and they know each other from like back in the day. And Joel is like, well, I need Hillary to actively say, that she's making this particular movie and everyone should go see this movie. And Bob's like, yeah, we're not really going to do that. And Joel's like, oh my God, they go back and forth and now they're arguing. Joel says something to the fact effect of, you know, I made a lot of really great movies, Bob, you know, I, I have a good instinct on this. And Bob goes, <laughs> great, like demolition man. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh man joel joel is so taken aback and joel's like oh, I, you know, I thought that movie wasn't bad <laughs> wow i can so see it though i can totally oh my god that's hilarious he's just not afraid to like yeah you know, butt heads with anyone so i learned a lot I mean, I, I think I do it a lot nicer. So how is that partnership? The origin story of that partnership is what? You had already, you'd been a co-show runner of Tarzan. They bring you in and they're like, hey man, we want you to co-show run again. Like how did Bob become a part of the sauce? Yeah, exactly. I mean, and remember, like I'm still, I'm only 30 years old. And the only thing under my right. belt was like a really bad television show, <laughs> like a truly terrible television show. And so they they still do it a lot where they take younger kids and they want to pair them with, you know, someone more experienced. I met with a couple people and the thing I loved most, I loved a lot about Bob, but beyond his experience and like, you know, the, the shows, I mean, Midnight Caller is a dope, great, great show. Right. And so one, he was impressive. And two, Bob came in and said, look, man, I want to help you make your show and then I want enough time that I can golf. Like that's what I want. And so I'll be there and I'll push it all through, but I don't, I don't want to control the fucking show. I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying to do less, not more. And that to me was like, that's amazing because what he, you know, really wanted was to be into like all the shit that I knew nothing about, like the budgets and pushing all that stuff through and the logistics of production because he comes at it like a director. And as long as he was directing episodes, like I said, he was invaluable in, you know, giving great room advice and being there. But he also, I don't think he really likes the room very much. I happen to love it. And I think he was cool with right. letting the room be my domain where like I was 
in charge of the room and he was in charge of every other thing outside of the room so I could focus on the room in the beginning. And then I started to learn more and more and then took on more and more responsibility every year. Um, Bob gave me the, um, and I still, I tell this to young showrunners all the time, the single best piece of showrunning advice I ever got, I got from Bob and I got it. It was literally the first thing he ever said to me when we sat down and he said, I'm going to tell you the most important rule of show running, which is you're in the business of making decisions. He said, and then let me give you the corollary to that uh, rule. It doesn't actually have to be the right decision. And that's, if you can boil down show running to that one thing, it's that like you have to be, keep the train moving. That's, I mean, that, that's, and that's why he was the best choice for you for that show. I mean, they don't make them like Bob anymore. That's such great advice. No, they really, really don't. Yeah. Everyone now are a bunch of candy asses. <laughs> Seriously. And, and, and the, <laughs> right? <laughs> and Bob was just. Don't get me uh, started. No, and Bob yeah, is just. He's, he's the best. He's a legend. Yeah. It's all coming back to me now. Where um, when we needed the trickster, it was it was Bob who, he made that. What, what was the World War II pilot? Sam he made Circus. You, Rich. Sam Circus. Sam Circus. Right. And he was like, he's like, I got just the guy. He's funny and he and he's smart. And, and he, you know, he he put you in front of us. He put Jim Beaver in front of us because he had worked with Jim on that Mark Harmon show he did. So right. yeah, yeah. I got the perfect Absolutely. guy. He's he's funny. He's smart. That's awesome. He's he's kind of silly looking. Eats a lot of candy. <laughs> oh, by the way, I have like if you'll indulge me in like a 20-second story. So over the holidays, I was I was in Thailand. I went on a vacation in Thailand with my family. And I'm in this random town in the north of Thailand and at a Buddhist temple. And there's a thing you can do there where it's it's literally called monk chat, which is you bring them offerings of food because that's how they live is they get food offerings. And then you can bring an offering to the temple and they'll find an English speaking monk who will sit down and kind of talk to them about their life and how they ended up as a monk. And I mean, this is not a, this is not like a big city. This is in, in the North. And he's telling us about it, me and my kids and my wife about his life and, and, you know, how he feels about Buddhism and, and everything. And then finally, at the very end, he's like, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm a television writer. And he says, um, oh yeah, like we, you know, we have access to a computer once, once in a while. Like what, what shows have you worked on? I was like, you have not seen anything I've done, but you know, I wrote on a show called Supernatural. And he says, the one where the alien is slow dancing with the guy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I was like, yeah, did you see that? He's like, yeah, that was hilarious. And um, like, he was totally aware. That's amazing. So, um, you have fans awesome. rich in um, That's really caves cool. in, throughout. In, um, temp temples yeah. <laughs> all over the world. Holy men, holy yeah. men, love your shit. I was gonna say, I am. I've always had like uh, the holy yeah. sort of. He's big in audience, that like the no, whole. It's true. Yeah, that's men his, of the cloth that's his demo. No, the, the, my, the my Pope people. creams his jeans when he gets to that's see. Took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> that's. Uh, I'm just gonna slide back so when the lightning love, bolt strikes you. My, my favorite part about that line is like the Pope's words. <laughs> 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 that's what I enjoy most Dude, about that. That's awesome. Let's talk about uh, Jensen and Jared for a second. So, you know, obviously yeah. it wouldn't be the show that it is without Jared Padalecki and Jensen Ackles. When you were developing it, how close were they to what you imagined Sam Dean being like? No, I, I remember what, I mean, 
you know, the person who deserves a lot of credit for for picking those two guys is Nutter, because you know, as the pilot director, he's sure. really in charge of the of right. the casting, and he's really good at that. We, what I remember is like we saw everybody. You know, you see just dozens and dozens yeah. and dozens dozens of people. And um, I don't know if anyone's told the story on this show yet, but Jared came in and was an amazing Sam. He's sort of like. You know, like just to be an everyman yeah. and, and you know, has a really relatability. Mm-hmm. Smart. He was also skinny then. <laughs> like he wasn't like yoked yeah. to yeah. shit, you know, where you're like, he's so powerful. Right. Like he, he just was like a skinny kind of yeah. kid. And and that was sort of perfect for, for Sam. And then uh, uh, Jensen came in and um, read for Sam, was not reading oh, for wow. Dean, and was actually, did a pretty brilliant Sam. Like, you know, it was sort of smart and interesting. So you go, in in those days, you guys finally remember, you'd have to do these, like, reads in front of studio presidents, like, f***ing yeah. live, and it was so yeah, horrible. Yeah. yeah, and so we're doing this studio test in front of Peter Roth, the the legendary president of, of Warner Brothers right. Television at the time. And so me and Nutter, we bring in Jared and Jensen to both read for Sam. And we're like, we don't really, we ha- and there's not really a Dean that we're, you know, there's a couple of guys, but there's, we're still looking for Dean, but here's two great choices for Sam. And the both guys came in and read and both guys were brilliant. And it was Peter. Peter's a smart, smart guy. And he's like, well, why don't you make Jensen Dean and make Sam and make Jared Sam? You may- and then you got them both. And we were like, yeah, why, why don't we? And and we go out and you know you're, he's in the waiting room, right? And so yeah, like I call Jensen off to the side. I definitely remember this, and I'm like, you know, like I don't think Sam is gonna happen, but like, are you interested in Dean? Because I think we can put you in Dean, and I know that's not the character you you wanted. And he's like, you know, it's funny. That's the character I always wanted. My agent talked me into the other one. So then we put those two forward. That were the only they were the only two we put forward, and and then. We were off to the races. Wow. Did he ever have to actually read the material in front of anybody or had he read enough Sam? No, so like, he did. And then we had really to, um, I still remember this too, which is Nutter had offices in Santa Monica in a in a conference room in his offices. We brought in Jared and Jensen so they could read together for the very first time as Sam and Dean and sort of just rehearse for the network test. Um, and that's where they both found out they were from Texas and kind of connected for the first time. And... I, you know, even in that moment, like I, I distinctly and vividly, I mean, yeah, it's a long time ago, man. Big it's, moment though. It's almost big, 20 years ago. Yeah. yeah. But like, but I distinctly remember the chemistry even then. And you're like, oh, wow, this could work. Like, you know, one of them just ha- rolls with that Luke Skywalker thing. And one of them rolls with the Han yes. Solo thing. And it like, it, yes. it fits. Yep. You know, so I when they when so if they read read with each other when they did the final test were they reading together were they in there in the room they together? were we we because we only brought they were our only choices and so we brought them in to read the scenes wow. together and they walked out of the room and and um, the network cast them said yes right wow, then and there cool it's funny you say the the Luke That's Skywalker awesome. Han Solo thing because I have I've never thought that before now we're watching from the beginning the entire series really for the first time and so. All these things that everyone kind of already knows are now I'm I'm getting for the first time. But you know, Dean especially reminds me of Han Solo. He's he's so Han Solo. Yeah. And you know, I just I love the dynamic between them two. And one other thing I wanted to say just before we we talk about mu- music earlier, the music is so important to this show too because in first season on Netflix, you don't get to hear the, that that music. I know. And dude. and so I Rich know. and I didn't get to hear that. And then you know we would read on this podcast this 
episode featured and heard what the real songs were, we were like, oh man, that would have been incredible, you know. No, the but, but, but then it would have this other line saying, was, but, but in this uh, yeah, digital it, version, you got <laughs> Jimmy Baking Bread by the you know, yeah. Salon yeah, Five. Here's a bunch of canned yeah. shit, yeah. And yeah. it's all like library yeah. shit. And it shows you how old the show is in that no one had ever thought to make a contract for streaming rights when we did the first and second season sure. of the show. No one even knew there was such a thing. You got your Netflix in the mail, like a civilized, yeah, exactly. you know, like a civilized yeah. human. And then Warner Brothers just didn't want to kick in the dough right. by the streaming rights of all those songs. Well, because they were like streaming <laughs> right. stuff. It's, it's not going to stick around. You it's know? a fad. Uh, but if you right, buy the DVDs, at least the DVDs have the right um, music. So we have a lot of questions that are like, did you plan on this or was this reverse engineered kind of thing? One of them, one of the questions mm -hmm. is around John and Mary the ba early backstory about that came out later about Mary being a hunter and the deal with Azazel was that worked out in early development or was that reversed engineered later? No, it, it, that was reverse engineered. The part where Mary was uh -huh. a hunter, the the Azazel thing was Planned. was pretty locked in, and really what was what was really locked in from the beginning was that Sam was quote unquote like the chosen one, but in a demonic way, right? That was always that was from, the, from beginning. the beginning. Interesting. Yeah, that was always from the start, and that Azazel was like the the demon who initiated it, and that eventually it was going to build to Dean and Sam having to fight. Um, that was always wow. from the wow. start. I mean, look, it's it's part of it is once you break down the math, you're like, okay, so here's a story about two estranged brothers who have to come together. So it makes sense that when it's at the end, they have to undergo that final test of like, can they survive? Most everything else was kind of added as we went. Mary's whole backstory. You know, I used to have a, I'm sure someone said it on this show. I used to have this very firm, no angel rule. People pitch me angels all the oh, yeah. time. Those first seasons and i would be like i kept i am like i keep telling you no angels because to me the only way i could conceive of angels was like i don't want like the boys don't get help i don't want anyone to come down and be able to help them you know like it's too easy to have a supernatural creature on your side you told me that when you call me at the end of season five and you're like so you're god yeah. and i was like oh awesome and you're like so i can't bring you back <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, right. It's right. it really is the kiss yeah. of death to be yeah, God. Yeah. Uh, it's that's but you said it was uh, that reason you couldn't have me coming in and just saving the day every episode. You know, too yeah. powerful. Like you can't have like you you need your good guys to be outgunned. Right. And so then in season four, it like occurred to me in between seasons three and four, I like suddenly came in the door to first day of the room and I was like, guys, angels. <laughs> and they, I mean, the, the, the roar of like, you motherfucker, <laughs> like <laughs> after like years of telling them no angels, I was like, but they're dicks. This is the difference. They're dicks. They're every bit as dicks as the demons, just in a different way. So good. You know, and I think I honestly, I think that was the missing piece the show needed. It snapped together in a way that, you know, I think the first three seasons, there's, believe me, there's a lot that I love and I'm totally proud of, but like the mythology to me never quite clicked into place until I understood that humans were trapped in this war between these two sides. And and it, it just balanced it in a right. way that I understood for the first time. I'm like, oh, okay. So they're in the middle. We're trapped in the middle. And, and it just, it all made 
you know, a lot more sense to me than, you know, the first three years, which was probably like the omen. Right, you know, or some, or right, or something right, like that. Right, right. And this one was just is just clicked that um, you know, that's why we never looked. Back. And did you always have a five year plan for yourself? You were going to be out in five. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I well, it's only because I had, I had written the in my mind, I I had mapped and and a mapped out is a strong word. It's a it's a drunk cocktail napkin sketch. I mean, you just what I've told you is about everything I knew at the right. time. But like, but I had this sense of like. Okay, season one will go this far. Season two will go this far, and and it's not like I picked five for any story creative reason. It's like I couldn't imagine in my wildest right. dreams getting a show that went beyond five right. years. Right. You know, and and right. and five years. You know, the end of four is when it hits syndication, <laughs> and that's when like you know hopefully you start making money, and then and then the fifth year. So I was just like, it wasn't like five years because of any master plan. It was just, that was all I could imagine. Yeah. But yes, there was, there was that, that five-year plan. Although if you ask Bob, Bob's like, there was no (laughs) five-year plan. He never said anything to me about it. (laughs) That's probably true. Or did he, did he look at your cocktail nap and go, you call (laughs) that a plan? plan? Um, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) I'm glad we're talking about Bob just for a second, because I want to talk about the writer's room, the Mm -hmm. early genesis of the writer's room. So you come from Tarzan pretty quickly thereafter you're doing a different show were there any any writers who came with you anybody from Tarzan become a supernatural writer no no they all very reasonably thought I was an idiot <laughs> so they all they all were like I have no way I'm climbing into another fucking show with that guy so then how was that process of finding your writing team because that's obviously super important just like finding Sam and Dean really so like how did that go? For sure. Um, you know, you take a ton of interviews and you try to find people who you vibe with. I mean, this is a, you know, this is brutal, but it's true that in these season one rooms, if you can find, just because you're throwing darts at a board in terms of like, you don't even know the tone. And so you don't know whether they can stick that tone. And so in season one, you know, John Scheiben, who was really a core early player because he was one of the senior guys of the X-Files. X-Files was just ending as we were inheriting, you know, so we inherited a lot of their crew and Kim Manners, obviously. Yeah. And um, and right. so, you know, his knowledge of like X-Files mythology was really invaluable and and the Mulder and Scully rules we, oh, we yeah. would crib a lot from. And so John was super useful. And then um, a young uh, staff writer named uh, Sarah Gamble and and Rail Tucker, her writing partner yeah. at the time, you know. And then John left a couple of years later. But to my knowledge, that was kind of it. Um, and then we had other writers who kind of you know came yeah. and went, and you know didn't quite work right. out, and or went off to do a different thing. And so, but then the next year, so we had we had John and we had Sarah and Rail, and then in, and then Ben yeah. Edlund, Jeremy Carver. Right. And then Jeremy Carver shows up and then, you know, so like people start rolling in and then, and, and you keep, you desperately try to hold on to people that are, that are working. And then, you know, by the time you get to the third or fourth season, you got four or five people who can write the show. And then, you know, then your job just becomes so much easier. Do you, um, like, was there a conversation about making Jeffrey Dean Morgan's character a bigger part of the show? For sure. We wanted uh, Jeffrey Dean to be part of the show. Um, you know, when we cast him, we knew how charismatic he, yeah, he was. Yeah, he's a star. And, and was a star, yeah. right? And um, and so we were like, well, let's use that guy. 
and then we started to, and then uh, <laughs> Grey's Anatomy swooped him up. Yeah, right. And and then suddenly, like he's Denny, right. like all yeah. the time, and we could never, we could never get him. So I think the original story, I vaguely remember. You know, Jeffrey and I to this day, like I love the guy. He's he's doing a big season arc in this next season of The Boys, along with a certain. <laughs> Can't wait. Oh man, your career. <laughs> Um, and, uh, uh, but in a good way, <laughs> in the best way, in the best way. I can tell you, I've, I've seen some stills from Rob's work. And if you're going to implode, this is the way you want to do it. This is, uh, you're, you're, he's wearing the right outfit for it. You oh know what my I'm saying? God. I mean, it's honest. No, what it's really going to be is amazing. And people are going to lose their minds. But, um, Anyway, so uh, <laughs> I think originally, if I remember correctly, there were there was plans to have like a lot more Jeffrey Dean, but I think it was just it, it got you know he, he just got, too, got hard yeah. to write for because he he, he kind of right. blew up right around then and deservedly yeah. so. I have another question, Rich. Did you have something you wanted to ask? It's such an interesting like you. The, it's such lightning in a bottle. The supernatural model, like you know the the idea that you found the guys of the chemistry that you found the writers' room that connected with you. At any point, did Rob ha Rob did Bob have a voice in the in picking writers? You said he wasn't involved in the room, but did he? Was he reading scripts and helping you find the people to execute your vision? Oh yeah, a thousand percent. He was there every step of the way for everything. And, and especially in those early days, he would, he would be in the room and he would always, he'd always be like, Let, let's take a break. And then he would pull me out of the room and like, give me some advice about, you know, this story's a dead end and you got to tell them this. And, you know, and then it took me, I'd say over that year and then the next year to just really find my legs to the point where like by the end of season one into season two, he would come in and, and he'd be like, that story isn't going to work. I'm like, the cake is still baked. My friend, don't eat raw cake. Like, let me bake the cake. It's going to be delicious. Just give me a minute. And then what about finding the DP and finding, because so much of the show, also Supernatural, is discussed a lot as we watch it. Serge. For the first time, the old original season. Serge. That it's dark, you know, and, and it's got a great look and it look, didn't look like anything. It didn't look like some dope in a boat. Like, it, it didn't look like the other crap that was on the right. CW at the time. Like, you found a very a much cooler tone color, from a color palette and a, and a look. So how did that come about? Well, um, uh, two, there's, there's two DPs whose stories need to be told. One is Aaron Schneider who shot the pilot and has gone on to be a director. He directed that, um, you know, that World War II Tom Hanks movie, uh, Saving Private Ryan. No, I'm kidding. Greyhound, <laughs> oh, yeah, the yeah. one where, he, where he's oh, yeah. in the U-boats. Yeah. Uh, uh, Aaron directed that oh. and some other movies. And he, with David, you know, the goal at the time, we pitched it as, at the time, like the ring was big and the grudge was big. And we pitched it as a horror show. I mean, people forget it's such a deep mythology now that we just pitch it of like, we're going to do a scary movie every week. And so we wa we wanted right. it to look like a horror movie. And it was really lit. I, I mean, if you look at that pilot, like some things in that pilot are aggressively yeah. dark, like daringly. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's yeah, great. Daringly it's so dark. Cool. Yeah. And I remember like the the studio, because we weren't really like making our days. And, and Aaron is a very uncompromising DP. So like, and I, as a young producer was like, Hey, can you kind of like pick up the pace a little bit? And he's like, no, no, I can't. And I'm like, well, the studio is sort of feeling like we're not making our days. And he like looks at me, he's like, they don't pay me to be fast. <laughs> wow. Wow. Like, there you that's go. A ballsy, I know, that's a ballsy it really thing is, man. 
So then when it came time for series, you know, we're in Canada. So we're just looking at film and it was Serge's film, Serge Le Dussier, who was the sole DP for all, all of, it. of it. His resume and his reel was just beautiful. It was just really stunning. And he really understood Shadow. Mm -hmm. And then we met with him and he was lovely. Then he got the job. The thing I'll say about Serge is, you know, you can talk about literally anyone on the show, the literally thousands of people that have worked on that show over the years. The number one hardest working person on that show is Serge. Yeah. More than me, more than Bob, more than Jared and Jensen. Number one hardest, gru most grueling work on that show, it was Serge. He never sat down in 15 years. He was there 15 hours, 14 hours a day, every single day. He really did the work of two, two people. Right? Exactly. Like, I've, ne I've never been on a show since... That only has one DP. Right, right. It doesn't happen anymore. It doesn't happen anymore because it's too right. exhausting. The fact that he did all that, and I I certainly, at least in the five and a half, six years I was there, I never saw him lose his temper yeah, once. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah, crazy. Yeah. So huge yeah. props to Serge. And a lovely, lovely, lovely man, a real gentleman. My question is, it's a, it's a selfish question because it's a question I get asked all the time that I want to know how to answer. And that is, at what point did you know that Chuck was going to be God? Was it not till the end of season five? Was it at the beginning? Like, um, I will tell you. Just tell me what to say. <laughs> when we originally cast you, we did think of you as the as a prophet. Right. Like the the thing that you were was the thing that we cast you as. We didn't know like, oh, and he's really right. God. Yeah, and yeah. Like we we knew that he was the notion of like, you know, as we were grabbing these religious yeah. ideas right. and and revising them, the idea of like a prophet yeah. of the Lord was yeah. hilarious and especially one that was like as such a lovable, right, right. you know, uh, neurotic right, scumbag right. as as Chuck was. <laughs> but then I think the question started coming up more and more about like, well, where's God in right. all this? And we're like, well, God left. No one knows where God is. And then as we sort of probably it was towards the beginning of season five, they were like, you know, we're, we're going to have to answer the God question. Does he come in? Is Morgan Freeman available? Uh -huh. Like, how do we do this? And I forget who said it. Someone's like, well, I mean, what if Chuck is God and, and like, it makes sense. And we like went back and we looked over all the makes sense. Like, makes perfect yeah. sense. Like he he's down there. Like, honestly, the only one we tripped on. So it started season five is the short okay. answer. But when we went back, it was the one, remember when, uh, uh, Dean like flashed yes. forward into the yes. apocalypse and and Chuck yes. is there and it's the toilet yes, paper yes, line, yes, you know, like you yeah. know the hilarious hours of debate we had because we're like, what he's God and he's hanging out, you know, like hoarding toilet paper. Like no one could get right, their heads right, around right, it. Right, right. That's funny. And and there was a lot of debate over like, could he be God because that one scene? And um, right. and then finally, right. I was like, the whole thing's a fucking, the whole thing's like a, a hallucination in, in his mind right. anyway. Right. Like, That's what I always thought. So yeah, it was it was uh, basically you were a prophet, and then you you were so good. Uh, you got promoted. <laughs> that's amazing. Well, that that helps yeah. a lot. Yeah, that's basically that's pretty much what I say. Thank congratulations, you. Rob. Yeah, thank congrats. you so much, everybody. I appreciate it. Um, all right, <laughs> uh, thank you for that. Took a village. It was great seeing you, buddy. All right, yeah, I love you. Talk to you soon. This is Jared Padalecki stopping in to say hi and let you know that we've got to take a quick break.
Thank you for supporting Supernatural then and now. And now, back to the show. Well, that was great. But it was great because it's Kripke, man. Like, ah, yeah, such an interesting guy. Yeah, it was so fun to sort of you know lock him down and, and ask some of these questions. You know, we get asked questions in conventions that I don't always know the answer to. Oh, I rarely know the answer to them. No, and so it was it was it was fun to you know finally ask him about the the, the Chuck thing about when he knew that he was God and yeah, you know I get that question all the time. You know, and to find out about, about his early career and the Tarzan stuff, which I never knew any of that. No, the whole thing is really interesting. It's really fascinating to hear all about his early days, because uh, you know that's a nerve-wracking period in your life when you're trying to sell a show. And I mean, yeah. he's had such massive success, but it's great to hear about what, what, what he was like and what he was thinking before all that. And we just got a shot at a show and another shot at this show, and, you know, the rest is history, but yeah. it always starts as, a, as an unsure path. Yeah, and you know when you when you break it down, you put together you know anyone's career like that, you realize how many things were just he set himself up for success, and then also got a little bit of this thing happened, and because that happened, it propelled this thing to happen, and it's fun to sort of see what makes someone into the success that they are. You know what yep. I mean? Like yeah, hundred percent. The building that, blocks. If, if Tarzan hadn't happened, which was a horrible, which not a good experience for him, but it spawned this other thing. You know, hundred percent. You had to go through that trial and tribulation to get to where he is now. Yeah, so it's, it's really you know, awesome. It's, it's great. Always a fun opportunity to spotlight somebody and do a deep dive into what makes them tick and what drives their career. This was a, another fascinating opportunity that I'm really glad we had finally to talk to the maestro himself, Eric Kripke. This episode of Supernatural Then and Now was hosted and executive produced by Richard Spade Jr. and Rob Benedict. Produced by Stephen Hine, written by Stephen Hine and Hayda Holscher. And edited and associate produced by Trey Booty. Music provided by Tim Wynn. The episode was recorded with the help of Sonic Fuel Studios. This podcast is from Story Mill Media. Follow the podcast on Instagram and TikTok at SPN Then and Now. Become a member of the podcast at patreon.com slash SPN Then and Now or on Apple. Does this do anything? That's all the time so, we have, yeah. so thank you. Bye. So I, I, I killed this hooker, and oh shit, are you recording? <laughs> Story Mill Media. 